millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman. My co-host is Marsha Links-Qualey in Rabat. And we're very pleased to be joined by literary translator Savad Hussein from Cambridge today. Um, we will be talking about um, the numerous tra- and exciting translations uh, that Savad has recently completed. Uh, not one, not two, but three books we're going to be cramming into this episode, um, at least three books, uh, from Yemen, from South Sudan, and from Eritrea. Uh, before we get started, I would just like to thank those of you who have already uh, made a donation to our 2023 fundraising campaign. We really appreciate it. Uh, it's the first time we're asking our listeners for support. We've been doing this for about five years now, and um, we hope to continue uh, with your help uh, and the Link for our fundraising campaign will be in the show notes. It's also our pinned tweet. It is donorbox.org slash support dash Bulak. So thank you very much if you've already made a donation and uh, we really appreciate your support. So welcome, welcome Savad. So those of you who do not know Savad Hussein, which I assume you probably do, she is a multi-award winning Arabic literary translator whose translations have been recognized by English Pen, the Arab Lit Story Prize, and the Palestine Book Awards, among others. She also runs workshops introducing translation to students and adults and is probably the most active mentor of emerging Arabic English translators. Her <laughs> I think so. Her spring 2023 <laughs> translations include Haji Jabir's Black Foam, which was a co-translation, Bushra al-Maqtari's What Have You Left Behind, and Stella Gaetano's Edo's Souls, all of which we'll be talking about today. Welcome, Savad, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm a huge fan of Bulak, and it feels quite surreal to be, you know, uh, on the podcast. I feel like there's there's many reasons for you to be on the podcast and there have <laughs> been for, for quite a long time. Um, so we're very happy to have you. So we were going to start by giving just a thumbnail of each of these three books that we're going to talk about, which are uh, Black Foam, What Have You Left Behind, and Edo's Souls. And I will start out by giving the thumbnail of Black Foam. Uh, which is something of a challenge since it is a story that takes place in in kind of multiple interlacing timelines. But basically, it it focuses on one young man who has many different names: Adal, uh, Dawood, David, Dawit, uh, and and many different identities as he tries to to find a home for himself. To um, he he is um, a fruit of the struggle, a young man who is is born as a sort of 
orphan. He doesn't know who his parents are in any case. He's he's sort of raised collectively as part of Eritrea's um, independence movement. And and then as he moves through life, he is, you know, attempts to change his identity, including um, sort of taking on an identity as 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 uh, as a Jewish man and um, travels to to Israel with the Falasha Jews. And, um, and that, and that's where the bulk of the story takes place. And this is already too long for a thumbnail. So go ahead, uh, Savad, <laughs> Bushel, Maktaris, what have you left behind? Yeah. So thank you, Marsha, for, uh, introducing Black Foam. And, uh, Marsha was the co-translator of that work. And, uh, we're just really excited for it to be out in the world. Um, uh, the original Arabic and uh, what have you left behind in English is a collection of just over 40 uh, testimonies of Yemenis who have survived the ongoing war, uh, both, both from the north and south, collected by uh, the author herself, who is a Yemeni activist. And um, it's quite a harrowing read, but an essential one. Uh, as you know, well, actually, this is a quick th- thumbnail, so I'll leave it at, at, at that. And it's uh, out with Fitzcarraldo editions and also recently was made into a Guardian audio long read. If you'd like to get a taste of the book before you invest in it, uh, it's also there it's available as text, but they've done a really wonderful um, production job on the audio long read with, um, you know, sound effects and the rest, and um, have hired uh, mostly Yemeni voice actors to to read it aloud, which I, I thought was um, very essential. And then the third title I believe we'll be discussing today is Edo Souls by uh, Stella Gatano, which is, uh, she's from uh, South Sudan, and it's a sort of sweeping, epic, uh, describing through the perspective of three generations of women um, the sort of tumultuous times in, in Sudan from uh, late 1960s to the mid-1980s, told with like quite poetic language and a lot of um, humor and some raunchy scenes, you know, in a literary fashion. And uh, <laughs> it's just, I just love the book. Oh my gosh, it's such a great like book club book. And it's also just, um, I'm laughing because as I was translating it, I was just laughing a lot at, at, some, of, at how she, some of the scenes she's put together and which are meant to be funny. Uh, so definitely one that I would, I would highly recommend. Yeah. And that comes out in June. So it's, it's not out yet. I just finished translating it um, last week. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I, I mean, it's, it strikes me at least looking at these three books, um, that, uh, that they're all from places um, that might not be considered the sort of like traditional epicenters of Arabic literature. I mean, obviously all of these places do have their own strong literary traditions, but they might not be the first places that people uh, in the region and outside think of as like the traditional literary centers. And I'm just wondering how much uh, this is a purposeful choice or just a sort of you following your natural inclinations or, you know, is it accidental? Is it on purpose that you're kind of pushing a little bit or expanding the, the boundaries of the field of Arabic literature and translation? Yeah. Um, thank you for that question. Ursula, I really love how you've just kind of phrased it in terms of expanding 
our expectations and uh, of an understanding of of Arabic literature. It's very much um, an intentional uh, direction that I've taken, which is kind of uh, based on two reasons. The first, which was more of a personal one, is um, in the beginning of my teaching career, I used to be an Arabic teacher. My first job was in Johannesburg in South Africa at a pan-African school called African Leadership Academy, if any of prior or current students are listening. And uh, what I realized while I was there is there's so much literature on the African continent written in Arabic from countries which are not the usual suspects, such as, you know, we mentioned Egypt and, and Morocco and the rest just by coming into contact with students from those countries, right? Like, you know, we had like a Mauritanian student uh, um, who is now actually a celebrated filmmaker come out with uh, some shorts on Netflix, but that's something to be discussed later. Uh, exceptionally proud of him. And uh, so that was one thing that kind of, that was back in 2009. And that just sort of, um, for me, I, th- I think I just carried that onwards with me is that I want to make this literature more widely read if possible, in English. And then secondly, what I came to discover as I went along is that there's more of an appetite um, in the market for this literature because it's not so um, widely published or, or even celebrated. And that's just for like authors writing in Arabic from the African continent. And then when I focus on, you know, um, writers from the Gulf, like, you know, Kuwait or, or Yemen or even uh, Oman and, and uh, I've done some shorter Emirati pieces is um, also because I had a, a like uh, attachment to, to, to the Gulf, another personal one. But again, just seeing that there was so much space for this to happen. And as a translator, I always recommend, you know, as Marsha was saying, in terms of me mentoring emerging translators, that you need to think about what is your unique selling point? What are you choosing to bring into English and why you can't just take like a scattergun approach. You need to really be purposeful and, and intentional in what you're bringing across. Um, and so that's what my sort of uh, career as a translator has been is choosing works by, by these uh, sorts of authors. Yeah. Wow. That's really lovely. So I want to kind of back up back to 2009, 2010 to talk about how you got your start in literary translation and 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 why you decided to go in this direction so you've explained sort of why you decided to go in the direction of 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 literature from the arabic literature from from the african continent and also from the gulf but um why literary translation and how did you find your first projects and what were the kind of barriers that you found um in in getting started Mm. Yes. So with regards to why literary translation, um, I think even I know uh, a lot of my colleagues always say they kind of stumbled into translation or it it came to them, you know, uh, sort of by like coincidentally, they found out that they were good at it and they could make money from it. For me, it was not that like that wasn't the case at all. For me, it was I, I always wanted to do translation. Like I was very clear on this. Um, always wanted to work with Arabic. I originally went to college for pre-med and I changed my major to the like great chagrin of my family, especially coming from the subcontinent. <laughs> it's like, it's like you grow up with different languages and we didn't send you halfway across the world to get a degree in languages. And what are you going to be doing with that? So it was very much the, like the pressure was on me to prove myself that I can make a living 
with languages. And so that's why I got into teaching. And then um, in two, I, I, when I was at SOAS doing my postgraduate degree, it was in um, 2008, and I actually was approached by a, a company, funnily enough, based here in Cambridge, um, called, I think, First Editions, and they were looking for a translator for a Palestinian novel that they have had. And um, I did it while I was writing my thesis. And, you know, to be honest, the book itself wasn't that great. It never got published. But after that first project, I was thinking like, this can actually be something like, let me go ahead and like, really make like go of this. And so that was back in 2008, 2009. And then I didn't get my first contract until 2015. Um, And Mm -hmm. that was after like, many, many years of really like, just trying to make contacts and do sample, you know, um, translations and the rest. But I was based in Johannesburg and that was very far away from the centers of publishing New York and London at that time. And even for, you know, anywhere in the Middle East for Arabic. And so I was really struggling. And so a lot of the work I was doing was NGO work. I did a lot of like, uh, you know, translations for different um, NGOs and just kind of doing samples for myself, to be honest. And then um, the first, my first project came uh, by the of, you know, generosity of Ruth Ahmed Zaykemp, who uh, many of our listeners may know, uh, who translates from Arabic, Russian, and German. And uh, she had done Fadi Zaghmut's uh, Arus Amman. And uh, his second book, Jannah Al Ard, was out in the same press in Hong Kong called Signal 8 Press, wanted to acquire the rights, but she didn't have the time to do it. And also because they weren't paying, they only could pay in royalties because they're a very small house, like a two man sort of show. And uh, I didn't have anything at the time. And I was like, yes, please. Like, I would love to just to, to do something. And to be honest, that sort of opened the, the floodgates, really. The, so many times I would pitch books to publishers and do the sample. And they'd be like, yeah, we love this book. We love the sample. We're acquiring the book. But we're not taking you on as the translator. Why? Because I didn't have a full length translation under my belt. And so I was an unknown mm. quantity, untrustworthy. Mm. How could I do a whole book? Um, so this is something I'm always, you know, trying to help people who are getting into the field today is, is to sort of overcome these similar barriers. And because like g- coming up, when I was coming up, I applied to like, you know, Arabic mentorships and the like, which, you know, my colleagues have received. And what's funny now is I'm, I'm a mentor on that. Like, for example, BCLT has a mentorship for Arabic translators. I am the mentor now, but I applied for this scheme three times as a translator and never got it. Um, and so <laughs> it, it's. It's just, it's just like, it's really difficult to make a way when you don't have anybody to show you the ropes um, and how, to, like, so many of my mentees now are getting contracts in one or two years after having started their careers, which is wonderful, right? But at the same time, it just makes it that much clearer that people need help to get into literary translation, and you can't just do it outside, like, on your own. Mm. Uh, yeah. So do you think that they're, that they're getting tra- contracts in one to two years because things have opened up more in Arabic to English literary translation or because they're just savvier than you or I were? I think it's a mix of both. And, and also, I forgot to mention the only mentor I really had, and I know Ursa is probably going to think this is just a, this whole podcast is an ode of like a love song to Marsha, but Marsha was my only mentor we don't during mind. that time. <laughs> we so, don't mind love songs to Marsha. <laughs> yeah. And, um, she honestly was the only one who like even I remember we met first in Abu Dhabi at like a book fair who gave me the time of day and I went I used to do like a lot of book reviews for Arab Lit and go to Emirates Lit Fest because I was living in Dubai at the time to interview authors etc and all this cultural you know 
sort of things like dancing around translation, but never actually getting to translate. Uh, but Marsha was just such a great cheerleader and supporter and has, you know, um, connected me with so many of the authors that I dreamt of translating. Enough, I will stop here because again, I could go on and on and on. Um, but yeah, I think these days, two, two, two reasons, I think why, uh, you know, emerging translators specifically, I can only talk about Arabic to English, are getting contracts much quicker and easier. Yes, there's more publishers who are translating works from Arabic who are more open to working with emerging translators, I think, as long as they know that they're being supported somehow behind the scenes. Like usually I'll make a connection Mm. with an editor who I've established trust with and be like, you know, this is someone I put a lot of, you know, faith in their work and I would highly recommend them and here's their pitch pack, you know, et cetera. Um, And also, yes, I think the interconnectedness of our lives today that you don't necessarily have to be based in the UK and the US to to make a go at, at literary translation is is helping. And also the center has changed, like it's moved, right? Like now we have publishing houses, like for example, the Emirates Literature Foundation uh, publishing house that opened last year based in Dubai. They're coming out with translations in English from Arabic, right? They're doing um, Rose's Diary, uh, which is, oh, I've, I've forgotten the name of the author, but it was um, long listed for the IPAF. Yeah. So I just think, uh, yeah, due to a number of, you know, factors, it's easier. It's much, much easier to be a literary Mm. translator today than it was 10 years ago. So I also wanted to talk about co-translation and just in sort of theoretically, uh, I know that you've done co-translations, not just with me, because we we started out, the first one we did was Redi and Rowan, which sometimes, you know, doesn't get talked about because it's a middle grade novel and um, mm-hmm. rather than a grown up book. Uh, but that you're doing a co-translation now with Rania Abderrahman and I'm sure have with other people as well who aren't coming to mind at the moment. But I've seen some sort of strong arguments against co-translation, particularly by Anton Her on Twitter and then also strong arguments in favor of co-translation, particularly from the Library of Arabic Literature, uh, which basically does everything as a sort of a co-translation, or at least there are you know, two translators working on each project or as sort of a translator editor. Mm-hmm. Um, and some co-translations, you know, I can generally only speak for, about Arabic to English ones, clearly didn't work. There's some sort of mid-20th century kind of Frankenstein projects where they, particularly the AUC press had a number of, um, the old AUC press had a number of translators working on a project sort of somewhat at cross purposes. Mm. Um, and I just wonder what your thoughts are on the sort of ups and downs and the positives and negatives of, of co-translating. Yeah. Um, Anton is actually a dear friend of mine and I'm well aware of his sort of uh, (laughs) reservations about co-translation. And, uh, you know, from his experience, you know, I I understand why he has that view. Uh, As you said, personally, I love it. I love co-translation. If only it was more financially viable, I would do every book co-translated. Like, Mm. uh, I'm going to start with positive. I'll start with the negatives and then I'll move to the positives so we can end on a, a, you know, more optimistic note. But with co-translation, I think the as I've just mentioned, the, the primary sort of downfall is you're having to split the royalties, you're splitting the fee, uh, 
which, yeah. And then also on, on top of that, there's like an added layer of administration. You're having to, you know, for example, I have a very unusual work schedule because I have a toddler and a day job. And so my translation happens in the pockets, you know, whether it's like at five o'clock in the morning or it's during my son's nap time, which is right now, which is why I've asked to have the podcast at this time or like late at night. So trying to work that out with a co-translator, you know, with Rania, for example, who who's based in um, the Emirates, it was a little bit of, of a struggle for us to find timings that worked for both of us. And so also, you know, for example, if you want to take another run at a section, you need to let the other person know sort of changes that you're making or the sort of direction that you want to go in. So those are sort of the more negative aspects of co-translation that you have to slow down. But at the same mm, time, mm. this act of slowing down is, is what makes the translation better, in my opinion. Uh, you know, having to explain your choices to somebody else, really interrogating why you've taken this approach and not just because you think it sounds nice. You know, um, I think both with, with my collaboration with you and with Rania, I think the work is exponentially better than something I could have done on my own. And, and through each project, uh, you know, I consider myself an experienced translator, but I'm still always learning. Uh, and I just find that really exciting because everyone is bringing, you know, I, I find we're complementing each other in different ways. And what I think is, is very key, though, in which you and I did, Marsha, and then also with Rania we did, is you do a sort of dry run where you do a translation of a section from the book and then you edit each other's like parts at least to mm. see, because even if you're the best of friends, your translation approach might be wildly different. And so it's important for, um, you know, you to get on the same page. And I always recommend that to, to um, you know, translators who are coming to me to ask about my experience with co-translation. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I would just say also, <laughs> if I can have an opinion about it too, is that because... <laughs> Because there are so few editors who who are going to edit your your book mm. who have you know sort of recourse to Arabic, yes. it's just great to have somebody else. So e even in this sort of editor role, who really is also working with with the Arabic, because the, generally speaking, when you turn it in, you're turning it into an editor who's who's reading it only on on the level of the English. Yeah, from all the books I've done, I've only had two books. This is just a, a really crucial point you've brought up that have had someone who also reads Arabic look at my translation. So that was Fi'ranu uh, So Mama Hissa's my Saud Sanusi, Amazon Crossing got Mona Karim to look at it, which was amazing because oh, she, wow, she's. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah. And then uh, Baba Saha, Passage to the Plaza, was Hussam Abu Ayla because, you know, he's the serious right. editor for the Arabic for Seagull. But um, we're all human and inevitably, you know, mistakes will come to light. Like with Mama Hissa's Mice, there was one time I like it had said turn right and I wrote turn left um, and Mona picked that up. <laughs> and I was turn. like, oh, my goodness. You know, like, I can't believe I missed this. No, but it happens. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so it just makes you feel that much more comfortable and secure. And yeah, and in what you're doing. So I would I mean, other people might be like, oh, you're not confident enough if you always want someone else to check your work or if you want to have a co-translator. And I think the opposite, in fact, that if you're open to having someone interrogate every word that you have written on the page, you have to be secure and confident in your craft. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's definitely. A very good point. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, versus I was not just aware trying to get that... into somebody who's... <clears throat> Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I was not aware that there was um, no extra pay for, like, the extra work of people doing it together. So, I mean, is it strikes me as like, (laughs) you say like there's advantages to this, like there's things that can get caught. It's almost like a, a second level of like reading and editing and, you know, it, 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 I mean, I'm a big believer in the editorial process. I feel like as a writer, a lot of my pieces get better from being read by editors very closely and, and, and rewritten in that way. And so I can imagine all the advantages of, of doing this. Um, and, uh, but I, I, I didn't realize that, that just meant that you get half the pay. Exactly. In and most, now actually, most cases, it does mean yes, half the pay. Yeah. And actually for anyone listening and who's looking to like break into, you know, translation or publishing, this is something that they could position themselves as is a sort of like, you know, this Lone Ranger free sort of agent who will bring to publishers their services of reading, the English translation against the Arabic because they don't have that in-house expertise, right? Like who is checking this? Whereas for French and Spanish, I know having attended other workshops, you know, which are led by um, translators in those language pairs that the in-house editors always have this language or they have someone, who they, they always check it. Like those languages are going through these checks, mm. right? Whereas for Arabic, you, they're placing a lot of trust in the translator, which I think is is good. But at the same time, I'm just kind of wondering why some languages have this added layer of, you know, checks, whereas for, for Arabic, there, there isn't. Mm. And I just, I do want to say something sort of um, to Anton's point that, that there have also been this kind of history and co-translations of the, um, you know, the, the, the native speaker translator paired with the, particularly generally in poetry, I think, paired with the, you know, the target language poet slash writer. Um, yeah. and those kind of translations where not both people don't have access to the language, I think are pretty fraught and politically fraught and fraught for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> Just downright dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> not recommended. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that really seems like a different process, almost like a altogether, I mean, to use the same name to describe them both seems like a bit of a of a stretch, actually, mm, because it's such right. a it's such yeah, a different they do, they do, kind of right. They do call those sort of bridge translations, I think, more often than co-translations. So, if we're talking still about co-translations, I I know that you are the one who brought um, Hedgie's Black Foam uh, to sort of to to publishers pitching it, and I wanted to know um, what drew you to this book. And, and and if you could talk about just generally how you curate the books that you take on as a translator, where are you looking and and what 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 really strikes you? you know, what 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 are the things that you look for in, in a project that you want to spend so much time with? Yes, uh, so much time with and most of the time unpaid labor. Uh, <laughs> right, yeah, right. Um, unless. Something else, yeah, unless what I try to do now, you know, become slightly more knowledgeable about, you know, literary translation as an industry is when I'm doing a pitch pack, I try to uh, place the excerpt that I've included in the pitch pack with, I, with, with a literary outlet online. So I'm getting paid for that sample 
uh, that mm. I'm presenting to the publisher. And also they can see that, you know, the editor of such and such publication had enough faith in this work to put it on their website. So, you know, I find that that my pitches tend to be more successful when I, I come to publishers with published excerpts. Uh, but in terms of Haji's book, it was long listed for the IPAF, as, as you know, in 2019. And I look to the IPAF lists definitely when I'm looking for titles, but at the same time, I'm also, I'm a big fan of like booktubers, uh, bookstagrammers, like in Arabic. Um, also keeping an eye on Twitter when I follow my favorite authors to see what books they're reading, going to their Goodread accounts because Goodreads, I'm not sure, like, I think it is quite still active in English, but in Arabic, a number of authors like Buthain Al-Aisa, for example, always puts reviews up on Goodreads like every few weeks, right? So I'm always like, oh, like, what did she find interesting? Because she's the head of a publishing house as well, Tequeen. Um, and so looking at all of these sort of venues for books and uh, for Black Foam, what caught my attention is, first of all, you know, it's an author from the African continent writing in Arabic. So let me see what this book is about. And then when I managed to get a copy of it, it's something I read in a matter, I think, of two days. It's a real page turner. Mm. Um, you know, as you know, Haji is not ornate with his uh, choice of expression or too flowery. Like he has a, managed to, for me, I, I think of it as like a literary thriller. Like it's, it's really, you get invested in the story, but at the same time, there's beauty to the language, but it's not over the top. And um, I just thought that it would do well and but as time has gone on when I'm choosing books there are definitely books like previously I used to be like oh I love this book I want to you know pitch it etc but in the past maybe four to five years it has to be more than that I have to think about okay how marketable is the author um, you know do they speak English are they from a country where it's difficult to get a visa to do book festivals um, how you know, are they open to talking about their life story? Like, for example, I was really into uh, one of Ghada Saman's book, but she holds herself up in a place in, in France and only corresponds via post. So I was writing letters to her, but then I was like, this is not going to work because the publisher wants to email her. And then she would like email from her friend's account. And I was like, you know what? Like, I just don't think this is going to, it would just take so long. And I didn't, I didn't have the patience, unfortunately. I mean, it was like two years in the making and I just gave up. Um, so that's for her autobiography. Anybody's looking for that. Like it's a loosely, it's a sort of a genre blend between autobiography and, 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 and the novel, um, uh, something for safe. it's like mosaic something. I can't remember the name at the moment, but now, you know, when I'm, th when I'm thinking about pitching a book, just because I'm spending so much time with it, uh, you know, unpaid, I have to really think about how successful would it be in English, even if, you know, it's a great book in Arabic. I need to think about more than that. It's more than the book now. I, it has to be the mm. author as well and the author's, how willing the author is to do publicity and the rest. And some might, some people might think that's like superficial of me, but at the same time, like I'm making a living from this, right? And if I were an act, like I have a day job, but at the same time, literary translation makes up a large part of my income. And so I need to make sure that when I'm pitching, like it sticks. Right. I mean, so some of the same considerations, say, that a literary agent might have. Yeah, definitely. I've actually had some of my authors say I should be a literary agent. And I said, yeah, thank you so much for the compliment, but I don't want to do that. Like, I just want to translate. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I think literary agent also involves a lot of 
negotiations and knowing about money and things like that. Exactly. And I just think there is a great space for, again, more people to do it. Like Yasmina Gistrati mm. is doing a wonderful job, but I always say there's like so many other authors from regions where she's not focusing on where agents could be representing them. Um, although having said that, quick point, like more and more um, UK-based agents are now taking Arabic language authors on. I've come across, I think about five in the past few months who are like, representing, you know, Ahmed Sadawi, okay, Saouda Sanusi, they're all represented by two different people. Then you've got Shahada Rawi, represented by someone based in the UK. Right. Um, so it's, it's, there's definitely, I think, an uptake, I've noticed, um, now corresponding with authors that uh, they're being represented by agents who are based in the UK and US. But then the issue is they don't speak Arabic, like the agents, right? The authors, a lot right, of them speak right. English but they prefer to speak in Arabic. So a lot of the time I end up doing some of the agent's work, but that's another conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I feel like the theme of unpaid or uh, severely underpaid labor is, is going to run through this episode uh, in, in, a, in a million different ways. And it's actually something that comes up on a regular basis for us, whether we're talking about publishing <laughs> or journalism or criticism or translation or writing itself, unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, um, but so to continue this, this this question of of so you know the choice that you make the moment at which you decide like you say to like really engage you know you're going to put all this effort you're going to put all this time so uh, with Bushra Al Maktari's book of uh, interviews uh, with people from Yemen which is a completely different kind of book a nonfiction book a really kind of uh, historical witnessing how did you come to that book and what were your what were your thoughts there yeah so this one's it, it was quite a different story in that uh, first of all it's my first nonfiction, a full-length project which was very exciting for me uh, because I'm really about um, trying to bring no, more nonfiction across into English especially penned by uh, you know women authors writing in Arabic uh, and so Bushra has a novel as well called Khalfa Shams, um, which I had pitched um, to Tilted Access Press and which I am working on it for them. And they've kindly given me like a long extension because, you know, life happened. And so that's not out yet. But what happened is there was um, uh, Theodora Danik, who works with Tilted Access Press or used to, um, was in contact with Fitzcarraldo. And they, I think, were interested in Bushra's nonfiction book. And Theodora mentioned to them that, oh, like, Savaz actually already working on her fiction. You know, maybe you should ask her if she would be interested in, in doing the nonfiction. And at this point, I had been pitching to Fitzcarraldo. I had pitched, I think, <laughs> about four titles to my editor at <laughs> Fitzcarraldo, Tamara. And she was really lovely. But every time she would just be like, this, this doesn't work for us. Like, I'm really sorry. And this is also something I always tell my mentees, like when someone says no, it doesn't mean the door is shut. Like by this point, Tamara had seen so much of my work just through these pitches that she was like, I want you to do a sample. And I was like, okay, but I was working on another book at the time. And I was like, is this a beauty contest? Which um, for some of our listeners who may not know, that means like, or that there are multiple translators doing a sample at the same time for the same book. And at that point, I was like, I don't have time to do this if it's uh, a beauty contest. If you're only asking me to do a sample first and then you give me like, 
you know, you refuse me first and then open up to other people, then, then I would be happy to do it. And, um, I wouldn't have been confident enough to say that a few years ago, but I think I was at the point where, I, where, you know, I was basically to do that sample translation. I w- we were in Ghana at the time. I would wake up at like four before my, t- my son, who was much younger. Um, I would just be translating in the bathtub in the bathroom because that was the only place where I could translate, like, you know, have like a safe space um, to translate. And that was the only time of day I could do it before like the day started. So because I really wanted to do this book. I really wanted to work with Fitzcarraldo. And uh, so, yeah, so they asked me to do the sample and they liked it. And then um, I made a big point of the fact that I already had a pre-established relationship with Bushra, right? Um, which I think uh, is, like was helpful in them making the decision. And so, yeah, by God's grace, I got the book. And um, what's interesting when I talk about like an author's market, market, marketability and you know their ability to, to do publicity and and the, and the rest like Bushra has said no to everything like she does not want to do and she hasn't done any publicity for this book or any sort of um interviews or you know anything and I respect her decision to do that because this is her life like she's still living what is what has been what she's what has been written about in this book like for her it's not something to, to market or to sell like she is just everything I, I think in her opinion that you need to know is in the book. Like what else can she add mm-hmm. to, to it? Mm. So I really respect her decision to do that. And Fitzcarraldo's decision not to pressurize her to do something, right? Because, you know, I think some of the bigger houses could have pushed and pushed and said that, no, actually, you need to do this. You need to write this or do some interviews and the, and, and the rest. And um, so that's how, yeah, th- that book came about. is one of the very few times, I think there's about three books out of like the, you know, 16 I'm, I'm doing and have done that have come to me. Uh, so it was a, a, a very wonderful uh, surprise. Yeah. Well, I'm sure that'll happen more and more often as, as time goes by. Uh, they are a great publishing house and they published a book that we talked about previously, um, the collection of essays by Allah Abdel Fattah, uh, the Egyptian activist. Uh, you yes. have not yet been defeated. Yeah, I mean, they have a they have a great, uh, um, y- you know, roster of of publications, and um, I I think this is a, a a pretty extraordinary book and hard to read. Uh, if I'm honest, I I have read it so far like a couple pages at a time, because um, because every it's it's a collection of you know, people basically telling stories about the worst moments in their life, usually, um, when they like lose, you know, uh, lose people they love in, in this war with the bombardments and so on. And I think, um, um, but it's, it's a sort of, it's a record that's really, really important. It reads beautifully. Um, I, I don't know how easy it was to translate, but both in terms of the way people tell her their stories, and there must be something about the rapport that she had with people to begin with. Um, right. They are just so honest and vulnerable and, and dignified. I don't know. It's very, very moving. I also like the way she has these tiny um, asides in which she'll sort of describe the person physically or emotionally, like what they're, how they're reacting as they tell the story. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's not, it's, I find it's not at all a book that you can, I mean, you, you, re- you, you can read um, uh, in one, in sort of 
much of at a time. It's, it's mm. pretty devastating. Yeah. I, I found that as well, that I could only read one or two of the, the stories at, at a go and that it took me a long time to get through. And I, I guess I was wondering, as you translated, did that also, I, I don't know, did it go slower than other books? Um, uh, I don't think it went slower than other books, but it definitely has been the most difficult book that I've translated, mm -hmm. uh, simply because I was not aware of the impact that it would have on me and that I internalized a lot of what I was reading and it started coming out in my personal life in different ways. And once I realized what was happening, then I had to counteract um, this sort of spillover by taking active, like conscious decisions to take breaks and to counterbalance a lot of sort of hyper anxiety. And, and as after I've become a mother, like I have become more anxious as a person in general, which I think happens to like a lot of people. But uh, during this time of translating this book, I was exceptionally anxious and it sort of impacted a lot of like the people around me. And, uh, yeah, I mean, both, the, both of you, the way that you've described that you've been reading, this is how I would recommend people to read it. You know, to be honest, I don't even think most people will get through the whole book. If I were not translating it, I don't even think I would be able to make it through the whole book. Um, but because I knew I had to obviously, so yeah, I just kept going. But, um, during the process, I attended a, um, a really exceptionally helpful workshop run by Jenna Tang, who is from Taiwan. And, um, she did a workshop on translating tra trauma and it just, uh, it was really helpful to hear uh, from other translators who are dealing with traumatic content um, you know, the sort of self-care practices you need to instill to ensure that you're doing the best by the work, but also by your own mental health. And then at the same time, you feel this, this guilt. Cause you're like, I'm not even living this, right? Like I grew up with violence. Mm -hmm. I'm from Karachi, right? Like I know people who have been abducted, held up at gunpoint, like, you know, um, people who have been murdered. Like this is something that is part of my growing up. But at the same time, this is a sort of the, the violence I'm translating is very different. It's, it's nonstop. It's, it's, it's just, it was, it was completely different to, to what I have experienced in terms of violence. And, uh, so it, uh, yeah, it just, it, it left a definite uh, mark on me. And even till today, like for the London book fair, you know, uh, which is when we're recording, this is, is tomorrow. And, and the ensuing two days, I'm doing a panel about translating violence. And I refused to do a reading because they asked me if I could do one. I said, no, I don't feel comfortable doing a reading because the only time I did a reading, um, was I think at my, my, my book launch. And it's just like, I just burst into tears. Um, it's just, mm. it's just, um, it's still, it's just, and I think some people might say that, oh, well, you you need to like honor what these people have said. And I said, I'm really happy for someone else to do a reading. Like, I think the book should be read aloud. And as I mentioned, like, you know, The Guardian has done the audio long read. I'm really happy for people to read the book aloud. Like, I think more people need to read it. But the fact of the matter is, I don't have to be the person to read it aloud, right? Like, it doesn't need to be me anymore. Like, I've done what I think needs to be done for, mm. for this to to exist in English. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's like a, it's up to you to choose how you honor <laughs> these stories, how one, you know, and, and I think their existence is enough, like you said, of the author's own position. All right. And the third book that we're talking about, which will be out in June of this year, is a, a novel by the extraordinary South Sudanese writer Stella Gaetano, whose works I first came across in her short story collections, which I found out about via um, Tony Calderbank, who translated um, a selection of her short stories. And I then, I think it was Savad who sent me the novel, probably. I yes? believe so. No? Yeah. Yes, yeah. probably. Probably. <laughs> Uh, and I, I just think her, her sort of both vivid sort of inventive language, the wild twists, the, the sort of fearlessness in, in showing us all at all kinds of aspects of life, um, particularly women's lives, particularly motherhood, uh, I will never get the sort of smell landscape of of this novel out of my nose, I think. <laughs> and I, I wanted to know, sort of, to talk about what drew you to this, to her work in general, how you worked with Stella, the, the challenges of translating this really sort of beautiful novel that is that is almost done. Yes, yeah. So, um, oh, we're, I'm just, I love. Stella and, and Edo Souls. And I'm so excited that you have the same passion about this book. I believe that I first came across the novel after having done um, the Women in Translation feature for Arab Lit a few years ago, where I went around and mm -hmm. asked different authors about who they would recommend should come into English. And I believe uh, Stella's name came up then. And I, had, I was aware she had done like a short story collection, but I didn't know she had a novel. And um, I've always had much more difficulty pitching short story collections. So I tend to work primarily more on novels or more, you know, long length uh, projects. And uh, what really drew me to her work is it's kind of a sort of it's although the writing style is so different from Haji's, I think it's sort of a, a similar this, the similarity for me is that I was kind of swept up in the story, you know, just as you said, like the, it's so tangible, like what she's describing, whether it's like the sight or the sound or the smell. And, and, and at the same time, the language is still, um, it's, it's poetic, but not too over the top. And, um, Stella herself, when, when I've been translating this book, has been so generous with her time. Oh my goodness. Like she's, I think she's the most generous author I've ever worked with. She's so supportive, um, extremely patient with me. Uh, usually when I work with um, authors, I ask them in the beginning, like, would you want me to save my questions till the end or like while I'm working through the book? And then I go with whatever they, um, you know, suggest. She said she's happy for me to ask her questions as I go through the book. So we just had a WhatsApp voice notes and mm -hmm. uh, just did a whole, you know, a uh, bunch of those. I still haven't met her in person um, or had like seen her on a Zoom call or anything, but uh, that's, that's how we worked. And 
and yeah, so in terms of what drew me to the book also is are the characters' voices um, in that I just find them very uh, authentic and, and, and relatable and you might not like all of them. You know, it's a polyphonic novel um, and there's definitely one character I really don't like who just gets under my skin. <laughs> but uh, again, it was still fun to translate him. Uh, and uh, in terms of the difficulties of this book, like aside from, you know, which is kind of something, a recurring theme is like any book you translate, you have to do a lot of research. But for me, you know, compared to, for example, a translator working, let's say from Swedish or Korean, like, you know, where you're working with a language that come, that is spoken by one country, like each time I do these books, I have to fully immerse myself in an entire different history and culture, right? Mm. Um, and so that is usually like the normal sort of groundwork I have to do. And then you're going further with with the sort of um, linguistic, um, how shall I say, like idiosyncrasies of, of the author. Um, you know, that she has specific turns of phrase, which seem a little bit odd but in fact are just the way that she writes um and um yeah so on a technical level difficulties were that this book was published in south sudan and i do not think that there was a very good level of editing um before it was published there's a lot of typos and a lot of like punctuation which is misplaced unfortunately so that is not by any fault you know to, uh, of stella's it's just like a, a, a reality of in a number of um countries that are publishing Arabic literature, you know, even the head of the IPAF committee each year has said how he thinks that there needs to be a greater focus on the, uh, how shall I say, the sort of um, proofreading uh, stage of, of when you're publishing mm. Arabic literature in Arabic. And then the second difficulty was that a lot of um, parts of the book are intentionally ambiguous so she never mentions the name of you know the dictator who was in charge of Sudan at the time mm. that she's you know, the the era like you know between from the 1960s to the mid 1980s even though it's like you know Bashir um for a part of it and then she also never mentions any of the names of 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 the rebellions or or the movements that took place um also like time is not mentioned so i was having to sh um, strike this balance between putting a little bit in for the, for the reader to be able to follow along and be anchored because otherwise you just all think, you just think it's one long like rebellion or one long coup or something when in fact it's like one after the other. And so I asked her if I could do this. I said, I need to put in some time sort of stamps just in conversation, right? Like it's not to make, to make it natural, but to let the reader know, like, where are we now? Are we still in the 1960s or are we in the 1980s or what? <laughs> yeah, as, as you <laughs> yeah. know, I, I did get confused about the, the era this was taking place. And you pointed out that there's Saturday Night Fever or something. Yes, um, yeah, there's the, a John Travolta reference. Right, that's how we have to mark ourselves in time. Exactly. So I think that was the greatest uh, challenge for me is just uh, maintaining the ambiguity, but at the same time, putting just a sprinkle uh, in so that the reader can follow along. Yeah. Mm. I think another interesting thing that links uh, Stella's book and Heji's is that there are uh, sort of is the, a multilingual substrate, right? So you know that Amharic is going on, for instance, in Heji's book, you know, and of course Hebrew is going on. And in Stella's book as well, there are sort of other languages outside of, of Arabic that are that are part of 
I don't know, the the glacier beneath the story. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, there were a few uh, instances uh, where I had to ask her sort of the, the significance of names because I'm like, okay, so this is the name, but what is, does the name have a meaning behind it? Um, mm-hmm. Or sometimes uh, there are just instances uh, initially, especially when Lucy, one of the main characters is in the village, there's more of the language used there, which has made its way into the text. And I've kept that in the English. Um, and something we also discussed is that there's a few songs in the book, which the character is singing in Arabic, but actually this character doesn't speak Arabic in, in the book, but it's just written in Arabic because Stella has written the book in Arabic. And I'm like, it should Mm. really be in her own language. Um, but as of now, we still have it in English because, uh, Stella is actually still, um, working out if she wants it in, um, in English or in the character's original language and how that would sound. Um, right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and so we're going to, um, you're going to share a little bit, uh, of this book with us now. I think we'll, we'll end on this, on an excerpt from Ido's Soul's um, this is towards the beginning of the book as the um, main character and, and her daughter and her friends uh, and other people in the village are being introduced. Ido's other friend, Marta Isai, was the most battered woman in the village. Everyone was accustomed to her wailing. She, accustomed to the beatings, her bones warped due to fractures she had neglected to set straight, her body a map of cicatrices and her features always hard to make out through the bruises, was a statuesque, fleshy woman, as solid as an ancient citadel, while her husband was an entire three meters shorter than her, the vile drunkard that he was. They never had any children, and so Marta, crippled with guilt, bore the beatings, claiming that she deserved them. Ido had stopped by after one of the nights where Marta had been howling and weeping, her husband having abused her with the foulest of words, painting her infertile and a lesbian, her ass as barren as they come. Her friend was crumpled on the reed mat, a diseased rhino, ribs probably cracked, spitting blood. Furious with what had become of her neighbor, Ido scoffed, you just can't get enough, can you? Don't you know how powerful you are? You're just lying there like a rhino caught in some trap, rolling around in the mud. Look at yourself. How can you let that rat play around with you like this, breaking your bones and giving you new bruises every day? What am I supposed to do? Ido picked up the thick cane that Martha's husband had beat her with. Her eyes traveled up and down the length of it, a customer appraising the quality of a product. Product. Beat him, she determined. Beat him? Martha bit her lip. Can a woman even beat a man? No, no, it'd be far too disgraceful, and I'd be the talk of the village. Are you safe from their tongues even now? People are always going to talk. Why not change what they're talking about and make it more thrilling, more shocking? But he'd kill me. You're already dead. A man like that will claim that you're no longer of use to him and slit your throat like you're some diseased goat. He thinks he's wasted his cows and sheep on a marriage that didn't do what it's supposed to. Marta grew tense to the point she started coughing and spat out a sticky red clot of blood. Ido calmly placed the cane down, 
letting it point toward the lump of bodily matter knitted with threads of blood. In any case, it's up to you. She gazed out the door, her eyes glowing as the sun's rays began to cast shadows. People's tongues were made to wag. They must be going on and on about how you let a small frog like him play with you this way, a man whose feathers have all been plucked out, and how maybe his third leg doesn't even have what it takes to give you a child in the first place. Trying to keep a straight face, she added, stupid woman. Then she slipped away, soundless as a snake. Marta started to stare at the red sticky lump and her crooked bones. She gritted her teeth. She grabbed the cane, its thickness filling her palm, reduced her eyes to slits, and inhaled deeply. She held it behind her weary body, her pulse racing, her chest swiftly rising and falling. Hot air escaped from deep within, and the muscles in her face and body twitched. Thick grains of sweat pooled atop her nose and forehead, then slowly slid down like raindrops. That evening, her husband stamped into their home and started raising hell with her, insulting her, complaining about all the cattle he had lost and paying her dowry. He threatened to kill her, slice her up, and feed her to the flying and crawling critters, all the while kicking her in the stomach. She rose up before him, a tree breaking forth from the depths of the earth, and stood in the middle of the room in the exact stance she would use when chopping wood with her axe, her legs firmly spread apart, the cane heavy in her palms. She crashed down upon him with all her pent-up frustration, beating, beating, beating him. With every blow, she whacked him so fiercely that his mother, his family, even his ancestors felt it. Panting, her insults fell into a rhythm with her blows. Thwack, you son of a... Thwack, you dirty... When he broke out into a womanly wail, she dragged him outside to the dirt yard for everyone to see, and with a practiced grunt, she lifted him up on her shoulders and dumped him on the hard earth again and again. She then beat him with the cane as one threshes maize until he lost consciousness, at which point she sat up top him, heaving a sigh like a wild animal. Some of the men tried to approach and free her husband from her grip, but she pointed the cane at them, her breath's staccato. Come any closer and you're dead. Where were you when he was beating me every night? Was it a dead animal skin he was beating? If any of you have an itch you need scratched, come here. The ring of onlookers dispersed, rolling back as rings of water do when you toss a pebble into a lake.